Welcome in, everyone, to Locked on Knicks. Alex Wolf here, joined by Gavin Shaw. Our uh, convo was so nice, we had to do it twice, split it into two parts from reviewing the Knicks games over the weekend. So we're going to get back into our discussion today. And we get into Mitchell Robinson. We, we delayed this conversation as long as we could, having a slightly disappointing sophomore season and what he has to do to turn that around. And then we get into the absurdity of trading Knicks. Frank Nilakina, as was Knicks reported podcast. as a possibility by Ian Begley. All that and more next on Locked On Every Knicks. day. Mitchell Robinson, I, I, I don't know if at some point we need to do like an all Mitch episode, but it, it, it's been, I, I know he had the ankle injury and that sort of broke things up, but I, I'm still kind of stunned by the fact that he hasn't been able to get over the fouling issues and turn himself into a, a better version of what we saw last year. Because I, I mean, frankly, for for now, even though the the counting stats are pretty similar, I mean, if anything, I feel like he's been maybe not a slightly worse version of what we saw last year, but certainly just not better in any discernible way. And I've been trying to parse how much of that is the pieces around him, and I think that that is. A pretty significant portion of it, and again, he's playing with pretty much the worst possible supporting cast for his skill set, but the fouling is, I mean, that's ultimately, like, all on him, and I know last night in particular, I thought some of the calls against him were BS and, like, very ticky-tacky, but he consistently puts himself in position to be a victim of those calls. Like, when he inexplicably, like, I can't remember, it might have been Torian Prince was was driving against him, and just for no reason, he sort of had his hands on his hip. And, and, like, the whole brilliance of Mitch is, like, he doesn't need to do that. He doesn't have to ride a guy because he has this spectacular athleticism, this lateral quickness that shouldn't really be possible at his size, and enough of a reach that even if someone gets a little bit ahead of him on a drive, he can recover and usually swat it pretty easily. So I, I just, I, I don't, I'm I'm just wondering what the disconnect there is between the coaching that I'm sure is so, so focused on getting him not to do that stuff and, and him just consistently fouling and, and being unable to learn that lesson. And I'm sure part of it is tied up in the fact that he is inherently so aggressive defensively and it's very difficult for a young player to separate th- those instincts to go after every ball versus knowing when to pull back enough to not get called for a foul. But it's just, I don't know, I'm interested to hear your opinion, Alex, because I've been, I've been frustrated and kind of surprised we haven't seen a guy who, who can play more this year when he's actually averaging a minute and a half less than he did last season. Yeah, it's, uh, it's getting a little alarming at this point how much he's fouling. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that he, I think he feels a greater burden to carry the defense this year because you have a lot of guys that, you know, as you noted, that are not good defensively. Um, I think actually when we see our best minutes from Mitch, it's usually when he's out there with Frank, um, which, you know, might mean maybe it's time to at least entertain the idea of throwing Mitch back into the starting lineup instead of Tosh Gibson and just kind of see how that goes because, you know, when he has Frank out there to at least play the perimeter well, and, you know, to, between the two of them, they know how to play a pick-and-roll together pretty well. Um, you know, you get a lot less 
of Mitch then feeling like he has to overcompensate to defend the rim and all that. And that's kind of where he runs into trouble. But to your point too, he does, he does commit a lot of really dumb fouls. I mean, he gets some called on him that are pretty ticky tack, but I get the feeling that refs are almost looking to call fouls on him now at this point because he commits so many of the dumb little fouls that he's almost getting like a rep now. Um, there was the, the one that eventually got him tossed from the game. Um, it, he had one before that, which was not a foul and the Knicks challenged it and gave him second life. Um, you know, because he, he blocked Jared Allen, uh, on a, I think it was, I think it was a putback attempt. Either way, whatever it was. Um, a little dump off, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Jared Allen got the ball, and, and Mitch had to make a recovery, and he turned around, and he got it. You know, he got ball and knocked it out of his hands. Then on the follow-through, hit Allen a little bit, so they called a foul. But then when they looked at it again, they're like, oh, no, like Allen didn't have the ball anymore. You know, no foul. So he got second life there. But then, you know, on not two minutes later, he was um, defending up around the perimeter and just got – up way too close on, I think it was Dinwiddie. Um, you know, yeah, it, it was like trying to trap with Frank, I think it was. And, and Dinwiddie just kind of ran into him, which is a smart play. And, you know, Mitch got called for a foul there. And, you know, Breen even said it on the broadcast. He's like, that that play happens, you know, a dozen times a game in the NBA. And, you know, most of the time it's not going to get called, but you still can't take the chance of that getting called on you. So it's like Mitch has to learn just the little things. And there was even a couple of times, too, where, I mean, Mitch kind of lucked out that he didn't get called for a couple other fouls. I mean, there was at least one or two times where I saw where I was like, oh, he just reached. And luckily he didn't catch any any arm when he was doing it. But it's just dumb little stuff like that. Like, don't – like, it's not your job to be the guy getting tons and tons of strips. You know, leave that to your guards and stuff. You know, like, just worry about defending the paint and don't don't take stupid hacks on people. You know, be okay with letting up a layup every once in a while, you know, if it, if it preserves your ability to – be the game-changing defensive force you could be, like, late in the game. And I feel like that's stuff that Mitch still needs to learn. Um, ironically enough, I mean, it, it shows it, – it showed the most, maybe, I think, in this game of almost any other game. And, and across from him, you had DeAndre Jordan, who I think was the guy that was maybe one of the best mentors that Mitch has had so far. And I don't know if – maybe that's just not quite Taj's, you know – leadership style or whatever to be super hands-on um, with a guy like Mitch. But Mitch, I feel like, needs, in addition to the coaching staff, he still just needs, like, a, a stabilizing player presence to, like, you know, like, put an arm around his shoulder, you know, on the on the sideline and be like, yo, man, like, chill out. Like, stop going for the stupid shit. Like, just make the proper plays and, you know, stop trying to play, like, defensive hero ball, basically, which I think is – Mitch's big problem right now is that he's trying to, you know, be the hero every time on defense. And, you know, as a result, he's he's fouling entirely too much. So, I don't know. I, I guess we'll see how things go as the season goes along. It's also possible that Mitch just might start, you know, essentially redoing the whole thing that he did his rookie year and learning how to control himself more again as the year goes on and adjusting to his teammates and stuff like that. But um, I guess time will tell. I don't know. There's no way to know for sure now. But, I definitely, uh, to to get back to your original thing, you know, I, I've been pretty disappointed, I think, overall this year because it just, it does feel like he's regressed more so than anything. Um, as far as the fouls go, even if other parts of his game, I think, have, you know, stayed the same or even gotten a little better, um, the fouling is, has gotten arguably worse and that's got to correct itself pretty soon, I think. 
Yeah, I'm, I mean, to, to your point earlier, I, I would love to see him and Frank out there for 30 minutes a game because I, I just, I, I get excited. I think I said this two podcasts ago. Every time another team runs a pick and roll against those teams in my mind, I'm just saying, all right, you, you don't know what you're getting into. <laughs> These guys are about to kick your ass. And more often than not, actually, like on, on that block, it came after a pretty good defensive sequence. Um, oh, like the one where Mitch almost fouled out, um, between him and Frank and, if those two played 30 minutes a game together, I think the Knicks would be, at least for those minutes, an above-average NBA defense, almost regardless of who else is on the floor. Because, I mean, again, part of it is just how crucial those two positions are. And if you have plus defenders there, it can make up for a lot elsewhere, especially with the fact that the Knicks can sort of pack in size at the forward spots, even if they don't have great defenders there. So I, I just think I think that would be great and a lot of fun, but obviously it can't it can't happen until Mitch um, stops fouling so much. So that's that's again the big takeaway. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else really worth noting from this game. Ellington back to back really good shooting nights, which was good to see. Uh, hopefully he can continue that because the Knicks, as this game was evidence of, and and like this whole season's been evidence of, like they desperately need to hit threes because they're not going to be an efficient two-point shooting team like I, I didn't even realize that that stat that Breen threw out during the Nets game on Morris and the disparity actually got even wider after this game but coming in he was sh- shooting 37 percent from two and 48 percent from three and it, it just sort of feels like with the spacing and the skill level the Knicks have they're going to be just so far and away the worst interior offense or and by interior I just mean inside the arc offense in the NBA they're going to have to hit shots from distance. And on nights they don't, that's when you see disasters. And I think that almost, I mean, obviously part of it is the defense is inconsistent and they lack focus at points. But that more than anything else, I think, is why you see them getting down by 30 points. It's because if threes aren't dropping, they just don't really have ways to manufacture points. And I I just, I'm not really sure how that's going to change because Alonzo Trier is kind of the one guy who, who's not playing significant minutes right now, who could sort of swing that in terms of his ability to get to the rim and draw fouls. But uh, unless he really shows something in practice, that's not going to happen. And, and you, I guess you kind of hope R.J. Barrett continues to develop. And if he can take a step forward by the end of the season, maybe that makes a little bit of a difference. But I, I just don't know how much is changing there. And I'm, I'm a little bit, I, I guess maybe worried's the wrong word, because as I often say, it doesn't really matter how good the Knicks are. This year, but that would be my concern in regards to any hope that they're going to be more competitive than they have been. Yeah, Morris. I mean, to the point there, he can't he can't hit inside like at all. If it's a layup, like forget about it. It's I feel a million times more confident about him shooting a three or even honestly one of his little like mellow esque uh, mid range shots than I do about him around the rim. Like he just he cannot make shots around the rim. Um, it's really bad. I. I didn't pull up his percentages at all. Um, actually, I probably could right now. They're relatively accessible on NBA stats. But, like, when he is inside, he's just – it's really ugly. I mean, I was thinking about that last night. Every time that he's inside, it, it's it doesn't – I get no, um, like, no confidence in him as far as that goes. Let me just see here. Uh, less than 10 feet. So inside of 10 feet this year, Marks Morris is shooting about three and a half attempts per game, and he is shooting 34% inside of 10 feet this year, which uh, is just really terrible. Um, and then 
other than that, he's shooting like catch and shoot three pointers. He's shooting 53% and pull up three pointers. He's shooting 47%. Uh, so that's, that's the kind of disparity. And it, you know, it'd be really nice if Morris wasn't, didn't have to be in a position to be taking those sort of shots, you know, where he has to get to the inside because it's clearly not his forte, but a lot of nights in particular on a night like this where RJ Barrett was sick and couldn't play, he sort of has to be that guy. Um, and, you know, I think, I think if he could get his mojo back, Dennis Smith could be the guy that could get inside and could, you know, draw fouls and stuff like that. But that's a big if with him, you know, figuring things out again, because he just hasn't, he hasn't had that confidence going to the inside this year or that like, same smoothness that he had when he first came to the Knicks uh, a season ago. And then other than him, I mean, RJ, you know, has been a little up and down lately as far as his finishing ability on the inside. And RJ, I think just as a rookie, doesn't get as many foul calls as he probably should, because I think RJ gets kind of knocked around a lot when he goes in there, but generally finishes so strong that he doesn't get a lot of calls uh, plus his age and everything. And uh, yeah, other than that, like to your point, they're, they're going to have, a really rough time most of the time otherwise because like Julius Randle's idea of a good take inside is just bowling balling his way into two to three defenders and trying to draw a foul and basically just throwing the ball up in the air and you know with no real regard for if it's going in or not um I mean I also I feel like I should note I I didn't really I didn't particularly love Randle's game last night he made a couple plays that were good and he didn't turn over the ball as much but he also took just some really horrific shots again. And, I, you know, he shot, I think it was 6 of 10 from the field. He did. He shot 6 of 10. But two of those misses legitimately were so bad that I was like, he should have been benched right then and there. The one he took, he was it was late in the shot clock, but he had three people, like, wide open on the perimeter after he started driving and didn't even pick his head up and took – this just horrendous air ball mid-range fadeaway. And the other one, it was relatively early in the shot clock and he looked off. I think it was, I think it was Frank. Um, it really early in the shot clock to take a, a really gross contested three pointer when he wasn't even particularly hot or anything. And it of course clanged and was a bad shot. So oh, wait, I don't know. That, that was an air ball. I just want to throw out there. That one was an air ball too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so he had two really bad air balls then. I couldn't remember if that one, if that one like hit off the backboard or what, but it was, oh, it was no, gross. Getting, arm. I, I might be getting confused. I know, I know one of them was an air ball. My fault. It, the fadeaway was definitely an air ball. I don't know about the other one. It doesn't really matter though, because they were both just really terrible shots. And, uh, you know, I, I wish that Randall would start getting held a little more accountable for that. Not to totally divert here from the point about the inside offense and all that, but. I don't know. It's getting a little frustrating watching. I mean, the Spurs game was even worse. Randall shot six of 17 in that one and one of five from three. And yet still just kept going after and turned the ball over four times in that game as well. So no, I mean, you, you're, you're preaching to the choir here. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I know. I know you're not a huge fan either. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, I mean, he, he, he sucked. <laughs> he's just, he's just sucked outside of that one game this year. And there's, it so frustrates me because Fisdale is, and, and I get like, look, this isn't the deepest roster. I'm sure there's front office pressure to pay him. So, like, I, I like for all I know, like David Fisdale is going to 
Scott Perry and Steve Mills after every game being saying, hey, like, I really think we should play Julius off the bench. And they're saying, uh, uh, no, we actually gave him $60 million. That would make us look really dumb. Uh, you can't do that. I, I don't know if that's true, <laughs> just to be clear. But that, but I'm just saying that's possible. Before I just totally crap on David Fisdale, I want to I wanna fairly note that that is a totally plausible scenario that wouldn't shock me. But there's just it, – it's the it's lesson you see time and time again throughout sports. And and should be ever present throughout the highest level of sports. Guys need accountability, and if there is no accountability, they're not going to change bad habits. And again, I always thought I've, I said this two podcasts ago, but I'll I'll say it again because it was I I think a really pertinent point. Someone like Greg Popovich was never scared to bench a Tim Duncan, a Tony Parker, a Manu Ginobili. Ginobili. I was about to say Ginobili, especially yeah. he would pull the plug on like immediately if Ginobili was playing stupid, you right? Know? Yeah, no, yeah, whenever they took, like, a bad shot or made a bad play. And what that does is, I mean, not only does it keep those guys locked in, but it also, I mean, it it really, as a coach, you earn the respect of the entire team. Is it the last guy on the bench sees, oh, wait, he's treating uh, Julius Randle, who's making $20 million this year, the same way he's treating me. I, I really I really appreciate that. And, like, everyone's on an equal playing field, and, and that's a great thing for team chemistry. And instead, Randall's just allowed to play through all these piss-poor shots and decisions and occasionally jog back on defense, not be very good. Look, if he was working his ass off defensively and really grinding on that end, and, and even if, and if his shot selection was a little better on offense, I would say, look, I hope they go in, and I hate that the Knicks um, thought that this was the guy, but at least I respect what he's doing. But none of those things are true right now. And the fact that, again, throughout NBA history, like all these coaches have held the Hall of Famers to that level of responsibility, and, and David Fisdale is unable to do that to Julius Randle, that's just, that's insane. And it's endlessly frustrating. <laughs> and they're not going to be the kind of franchise or build the kind of culture that I think they're alleging they want to until stuff like that happens. And it might seem like I'm harping too much on, on one or two shots, but I, I genuinely believe it. It's kind of a microcosm for the Knicks issues right now. And I, and just from a purely basketball sense, I'll continue to stand by it. They would be a much better team if they played Julius Randle off the bench. And I, I wish they would at least give that a look. Yeah, I'm certainly with you. I mean, you won't catch any arguments from me. I think, I think the ideal arrangement would be once Peyton comes back, Although you could you could have the same effect with DSJ, I don't know why they wouldn't do that too. But you know, once Peyton comes back, since he and Randall at least have some chemistry already, just bring them both off the bench. You know, maybe start an alignment of. I mean, we've talked about it before with potentially putting earlier in the season. I had talked about wanting to put Knox in for for Morris. Um, now maybe you could entertain the idea of putting Knox in for Randall, or even Portis. If we're being completely honest, I mean Portis certainly has his deficiencies, but I do think he's been passing better lately uh, or looking to pass more. And that's been a breath of fresh air compared to a guy like Randall. Um, and Portis is, you know, generally, I mean, last night he didn't really do that great, but he's generally been shooting pretty well from three as well, which is useful, uh, you know, in a, in a lineup that needs spacing for sure. Um, so, that would kind of be what I'd look to do and, and get Randall going with someone like Peyton who knows him already and they have history and they could run, pick and roll together, do some more basic actions than, you know, just trying to ISO Randall to death and, you know, let him quote unquote create, AKA like, you know, turn the ball over and, you know, take bad shots and stuff. Um, yeah, that's kind of, 
that would just be my idea at this point. I mean, honestly, you could even you could even entertain a starting lineup of like Frank, RJ, Dotson, Morris, and then you know Taj or or maybe throw Mitch back in there if we want to you know really shake things up, put Mitch in there too, and you know I think I think Dotson could be a good starting player to set set the tone early, you know, defensively if you have three if you had Frank Dotson and Mitch out there who are all great defenders and then you had uh RJ and Morris who have both proven to be good defenders, then maybe you got a lineup that can establish some tempo and then you just kinda let Randall feast on the second unit. And if Randall's playing really, really well, then let him close out the game. Um you know, because ultimately Fisdale has been one of those that, you know, before has been like, oh, who starts doesn't matter, it's who finishes. And so, you know, that would be a nice way to put up or shut up. Be like, well, Randall hasn't been starting that well, so let's put him in a position where, you know, he has to kind of earn his right to finish the game. But I don't know. I guess we'll see as far as that goes. Um, Gavin, I figure we should probably just touch on the news item real quick before we end. I don't really have too much more to add on these two games unless you add something. No, go ahead. So, yeah, so... uh, you know, SNY tweeted out and, you know, Ian Bagley had this report. He was, you know, doing the post-game coverage after the game, like a little TV spot for on SNY, and they tweeted out the video. And, you know, he, at first he just said, um, you know, the, the Knicks players, front office, coach, whatever, still believe that they've just gotten off to a slow start, that maybe they could turn things around, yada, yada. We've kind of heard all this before. And, you know, at a certain point, we're going to have to just acknowledge the fact that, uh, you know, Things have to change some way or another, uh, but whatever they can keep saying, you know, now they're four and thirteen and keep pretending like things might turn around. But I don't think it's entirely likely at this point that they'll turn around that much. But anyway, he he then said, you know, a, a date to keep in mind is a few weeks from now, December fifteenth, uh, is the day that you can start trading players that were signed as free agents, which, you know, often. I wouldn't say the floodgates ever open on that day. It's usually an overhyped day where everybody's like, oh, I can't wait for December 15th. And really that date only matters if you're like playing NBA 2K and you're desperate to start making trades. Uh, cause it doesn't really work that way in the real NBA. Real trades don't generally start, I, I don't think, until usually around January at the earliest. But at any rate, he had mentioned, you know, that date is coming around and obviously Marcus Morris is playing as good as he is. Um, so he's going to be a, for sure a candidate to get moved after that date passes. Uh, but when Bigley was reporting, he was like, you know, at a certain point, do the Knicks just want to face facts and start making, you know, future facing moves uh, rather than, you know, sticking with what they have right now. And he brings up, he goes, you know, they could entertain trading Marcus Morris and they could entertain trading uh, Bobby Portis, which, okay, that all tracks. And then he says, and the Knicks will also be taking calls on Frank Milikina and then made a comment of, you know, that, you know, would they consider making these sort of moves, um, you know, with an eye towards the future or whatever, something along those lines. So I'm a little confused by that. Um, it's certainly worrisome that even after how Frank's been playing and all the public praise he's gotten from Fisdale and uh, all of you know, Fisdale actually backing up his praise by playing Frank as much as he has to still hear Frank's name coming up as a, uh, you know, someone the Knicks might be taking calls on. Now, obviously, you know, receiving calls on him versus actively looking to deal him are two totally different things, but I don't know, Gavin, I'm a little, I I, I think it's, 
it's not anything to sound alarm about yet, but I'm going to be keeping an eye on what sort of language is being used around Frank over the next couple of weeks because, I mean, if the Knicks, for whatever stupid reason, are still, you know, hell-bent on trading Frank, now is finally the time when a team might be willing to give up something like a first-round pick or something for him, which, I mean, if it's like a playoff team you know, that you know is going to be in the 20s or something, that I don't think would be a wise trade for the Knicks at this point. Maybe that could have been categorized as a wise trade in the offseason, but at this point, I think Frank has shown that he he may actually someday, soon-ish, be playing up to his, you know, his draft spot um, of number eight in the, you know, in the draft from a couple years ago. And, you know, if nothing else, he's a fantastic defensive role player who seems to um, have a good feel for, you know, passing and stuff like that and can shut down the other team's best player almost regardless of position. So, I don't know. It's a little concerning to me. It may just be old intel as well. Like, Bagley might just be basically saying, like, the Knicks kind of dating back to last year have always been taking calls on Frank Nilekina and they had a specific price for him back then. Um, I do think, I mean, if you're an NBA front office, every player should have a price. Like, if, I don't know. Uh, what's what's another really bad team other than the Knicks this year? Um, if uh, I don't know who who else is even at the bottom of the standings, I feel like a jackass for not even knowing that. Yeah, uh, Warriors. Uh, War- okay, yeah, yeah. Let's say the Warriors. So let's say the Warriors called up and were like, "We'll give you our first round pick this year for Frank Nilakina." Then okay, you do that because then you're probably getting a top five pick out of that, and that's obviously great value for Frank Nilakina. But if like I don't know the the whatever the Rockets or something like a team you know is going to finish in the playoffs calls up and the Rockets probably don't even have any first round picks but if some team of that caliber called up and was like we'll give you our first round pick for this year I don't I don't think that would be a wise trade at this point for the Knicks so hopefully they've done a good job of reassessing the value of Frank and anything close to what they were allegedly looking for like last season and last offseason of like a second round pick or two or like a late first round pick. Hopefully that is now upgraded to like, okay, if you want Frank Nilakina from us, you have to prime away with like a high first round pick at this point. Um, Cause it, I think he's definitely played his way into at least being worth like, like, like a mid first round pick at this point, but I wouldn't even trade him for that because we still haven't really seen even a glimpse of what his ceiling could potentially be yet. Yeah, no, I, and I know you're, you're just kind of playing devil's advocate on this because the report's out there, but I, I just think the whole conversation is, is, is kind of ridiculous. Like, I mean, he's, he's, we, we talk, we've talked about it a couple of times. I mean, every, st- well, not, I, I was about to say like every stat, really just the, the most important one, I mean, is, is plus minus per 100 possessions has pretty definitively shown that he's been the next best player this year, which I'm sure some people will take offense to and say, all right, obviously it's Marcus Morris and sure, like you just for role and how much of a load they have to carry. That, that's a very worthy debate. But in, in terms of the impact he's had when he's on the court versus when he's off, he's been the next best player. And that's not debatable because it's not, it's not even close statistically. Uh, and given that, I don't know why you'd be shopping the guy. He, he's, he's the best option. DSJ, sure. Alfred Payton, sure. Uh, Morris, even if you wanted to sell high on him. Look, I like, I like Marcus Morris at this point. I think he's sort of the Knicks' only avenue to being in some of these games, like last night against the Nets. It, it would have been, it would have been a blowout if, if he wasn't playing. Uh, but if 
they got like a pretty good first round pick for him, even like a middle of the first round pick. Like I, yeah, trade him. I mean, he's, he's, again, he's not going to be like a key part of this team when they're in the playoffs and hopefully competing for something. So I, I don't necessarily mind that. Uh, Frank is right around with, I mean, behind RJ, probably still behind Mitch after that last guy I would trade. So just don't do it. Don't be stupid. That's all, that's all I have to say. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just, I don't know. I, I tweeted out like when that, that video and the, the little snippet came out, I just tweeted out like one of these things is not like the other, like trading Marcus Morris for even a late first round pick. Sure. Do it. Cause I think the Knicks have proven this front office. I think if nothing else has proven to be pretty good at scouting. Um, you know, I, I think that they've more or less nailed their first two drafts. At least, you know, early returns are looking really good as far as the draft and undrafted free agency and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, there's like that aspect is good, um, I think. And I think that, you know, if you can get yourself for a player in Morris who's only signed to a one year deal and who actually, I mean, because of the amount that the Knicks paid him, even to a contender without full bird rights or even early bird rights, uh, he's a relatively attractive piece to a, a team that maybe is even capped out. Um, like if he got traded to, I'm trying to think. I mean, it, it would be different if they hadn't just signed Melo, but let's just say in theory, like if Portland had been interested in Marcus Morris and they're a team that's pretty much capped out all the time because of Lillard and McCollum and, you know, various role players on their team, um, you know, they could have potentially extended Morris or, you know, re-signed him in the offseason to a starting figure or around what he made this year, which was $15 million, which is honestly the upper end of what Marcus Morris would ever get paid anyway. Um, so, you know, there, there's different little cap loopholes that kind of make this, make Morris just as attractive as, of a player as, you know, someone that might have bird rights and stuff like that um, for being traded. And so, you know, I think if you can get, if you can get something of good value for him, you know, even a, a in the 20s first-round pick or something, you definitely should take that and then try to draft another stud, you know, in that 20s range, you know, because I have no doubt that, like, if the Knicks had had an extra pick in the early 20s this year, they probably would have taken, like, Brandon Clark or something because, you know, that he went there and, at least to me and to probably a number of other people, that seemed like kind of a no-brainer because he seemed really talented. And he, it's, you know borne out in the NBA so far that he's definitely a quality NBA player that was, you know, snagged in the twenties. Um, so you want to go for stuff like that and keep building the young core, you know, and, and adding young pieces to this so that eventually there's just going to be so much young talent on the team that you can either trade a few of them off for, you know, a really good player, a la what the Lakers did with Anthony Davis. Um, or, you know, you just build a really good team from the ground up and, suddenly have this really good core of young players on cheap contracts and can just sign someone to add into them. Uh, so that would be a good move. Trading Frank, bad move, because Frank is literally part of that young core, has one more year left on his rookie deal, and hasn't played so well that he's going to come in a max contract or anything. So even after Frank's rookie deal, or when Frank's rookie deal is getting ready to expire, you'll probably be able to sign him to a relatively affordable uh, salary figure on a rookie extension if the Knicks can somehow get that far. I know it's it's a uh, difficult thing for the Knicks to make it to the point of extending one of their draft picks without trading him. But, uh, you know, if they can make it to that point with Frank, I think you could probably secure him for something like a four 
four year, $40 million extension or something along those lines. And it, it wouldn't be too big of an issue. Uh, and that'll probably be a value contract for years to come for the Knicks for, you know, a guy who's, who has proven to have a ton of impact on the game, even if he's not scoring the ball. So, I don't know. That was kind of a long, convoluted explanation. But, uh, yeah, trade Morris and Portis to your heart's content. Trade anybody that you signed this offseason, including Julius Randle, to your heart's content for basically whatever you can get for them. And that, I'm fine with that. But don't trade Frank for, you know, for peanuts. And then, you know, later on down the line, you know, complain about not having enough, you know, homegrown talent or whatever, like when you traded away someone who actually was developing right before your eyes and then, you know, just shipped them off for no reason. Yeah. Um, I'm with you on everything. All right. Um, unless you have anything to add, Alex, I think we could probably wrap up there. Yeah, I'm done. I'm good. Okay, cool. Cool. All right. That is it for this edition of locked on Knicks. Uh, we will be back tomorrow, uh, with another pod until then, uh, be good and, uh, enjoy your week.